this morning we're going to begin our study of the book of first john and the way that we've kind of split this and laid this out it's going to be uh 19 or or 20 weeks uh, that it'll take and so we'll be in this through june working into a variety of other things as we make our way uh through this book but one of the things you're going to see over and again in first john and it's kind of how we've themed our study of this it is love abide and sin and you'll see these words kind of make themselves very pronounced over and again each and every week in our study of this. And so you're reading through First uh, John and you come across and you recognize the, the audacious nature of our great God's love for you. The incredibly kind and gracious love that he has for humanity that is wallowing in sin, that is wallowing in self-doubt, and it is just struggling. And you recognize that in the midst of this doubt, in the midst of this sin, this great God's love finds you. It searches you out and it finds you and it, it takes up residence in your heart. And so this amazing opportunity to talk about what it is to have received God's love and what it is to be one who is also extending God's love to those around us. Moving to the second aspect of this, we look at the idea of what it is to abide, what it is to stay and to remain. And man, this is one of the uh, temptations and tendencies of kind of who we are. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And so what it means for us to remain and abide, to stay, to continually experience God's love. And one of the things we recognize is that sin is one of those things that pulls us away from, from readily experiencing the love of God. So it's a sin in our own lives. It's a sin in the lives of those around us. This is sin in the midst of a corporate body. Sin seeks to distract us from remaining and abiding in the love of God. And 1 John is written to a community that's experiencing and struggling with that very same idea. You see, 1 John is written to a community that has seen a fracture in their fellowship. Some significant portion of this body that John writes to has departed. They've left. Now, living in 21st century America, we recognize people leave churches all the time, right? Some leave because they don't like the choir robes. Some leave because there are no choir robes. Some leave because they don't like the carpet. Some leave just because that's what they like to do. Some people have really terrible hobbies. They're perennial church shoppers. Where are you going this week? I don't know. We're just going to flip the dice. You have that magic eight ball. You wake it up. You shake it. Does it look good for me to visit wherever? You know, future looks hazy. Looks like we're staying home, honey. Right? Church is a terrible hobby if this is your hobby. But we recognize that the situation John is writing into isn't a group of people who have left over some preference. They haven't left over a preacher with a list. They haven't left over the pastor's wife. They've not left because the church has made a decision they didn't care for. They have left because they have picked up and are espousing a radically different theology. So this group that's departed, this group that's left, and we get into 2 John 7, we recognize this group is actually sending out itinerant evangelists communicating something radically different about Christianity. Imagine then if you were to show up next week and half of our congregates were gone. So half of our congregation was gone and they went and they set up shop on the north side of Greenville. And then from that location, they begin to send out people to every other church in town and been, begin to communicate that, that Highland Terrace is wrong about this and Wesley's wrong about this and, and Johnson Street's wrong about this and, and Christ Community's wrong about this. And, and at the base of what they're communicating is a very different gospel. This is the situation John writes to. So imagine then that you're among those who is left. 
You look around and you, your brother, your sister, your husband, your cousin, your friend for many years, you're the guy that you've been in the huddle with, huddled against the pressures you felt from the empire. He's no longer there, he's gone. He's not just gone, but he's speaking back to you and saying that what you believe is deficient, it's wrong, it's lacking something. And so you're shaken. So John seeks to write to this shaken community and show them that what they know is true, it is accurate, and it is sufficient. Let me read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll walk through it together. John writes, and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with this Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things to you so that our joy may be made complete. It would seem that in some sense, what John is seeking to communicate to them deals with this group that has less understanding of who Jesus is. You see, this group that has left have this understanding of Jesus that, that stems from the base understanding that everything fleshly is evil and everything spirit is good. That everything of the flesh, me, you, humanity, is evil, it is vile, it is base. Everything of the spirit is good. So this group then, when they think of Jesus, we recognize that Jesus remains in perfect harmony, fully human, fully divine. Well, his divinity is spirit, his humanity is fleshly. And so to satisfy this group's understanding, they look at Jesus and they say, no, 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 no. Jesus wasn't really human, he merely looked like this. And so we have Jesus and we have this split on the other side that is Christ. And the Christ figure is divine, but he merely looked human. And this is how they seek to satisfy this. Well, you begin to recognize how damaging this is for Orthodox Christianity. You see, if Jesus wasn't fully human, then he couldn't die, right? If he wasn't fully human, then he couldn't die. He couldn't go through the same stress and the pressure and the temptations that you and I encounter. So it is vitally necessary that Jesus be human. It's vitally necessary. This is, this is at the bedrock of what it is to be Christian, this recognition that Jesus is fully human. He came in the flesh. And we see John begin to spell this out here. Look what he says. He says, that which was from the beginning. Now, in this, he's cluing in that, that what is it? It's this, this idea that is from the beginning is that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He's describing it in terms of, of this sense that he's had. He said, we've heard him. And so John spent the, the time with Jesus going around in his ministry. He heard. He made some decisions based upon the ministry that he heard from Jesus. He said, we've seen him with our eyes. It wasn't an illusion. It's not merely an ideology, but we have actually seen him. And so he begins to give some type of warrant from the, for the position that he's able to speak to them. Look what he goes on to say. He says, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. John begins to destroy their arguments. 
So Jesus didn't just seem from a distance to be human. We actually touched him. We walked up. We grabbed his arm. We held his hand. We put our arms around him. We felt his embrace. We have touched him. He is systematically moving through and destroying their arguments. We've looked upon him. We've touched him with our hands. Look how he describes Jesus. He says he is concerning the word of life. John, what John seems to be doing here is making a connection to earlier in the Gospel of John and to Genesis 1. He says, all these things are concerning, they are about the word of life. Well, if you're just looking for the idea of the word, and and maybe you're a good student of the Bible, and you say, this sounds really familiar, it sounds like something John has said before, and you flip over to the Gospel of John, you recognize he starts it in a rather similar fashion. He says, in the beginning was the, everybody say, word. In the beginning was the word. And so we recognize that his discussion was was about this word made flesh. It was about Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. But also in this, we see that, when was it? Everybody say, in the beginning. In the beginning, if you open up your Bibles to Genesis 1, we learn something radically interesting about in the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we begin to get this understanding and this idea that what John is getting at is the eternal nature of Jesus. So not just that he was this real physical presence, but he was that which has existed forever with the Father. So there's something radically different and distinct about who Jesus is. Now look at this curious way that he refers to him here. He says, concerning the word of life. And so we understand what it is that he is the word. He is the wisdom of God. He exists with God, and he is very God of very God. But this idea of life, we really see described and articulated here in Acts 5. Acts 5, the apostles have been uh, entered into prison for preaching the gospel. And verse 17 starts, and it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this, everybody say, life. So we recognize that Jesus is the word. We recognize, too, that he is the life. That there is something giving in the nature of who Jesus is. That in Jesus, we have and find life. So John, moving from this, goes on and says, And this life was manifest before us it was manifest we saw this well john has already addressed this in some fashion in john 1 14. speaking of jesus the word made flesh he says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and full of truth john steps into the middle of this debate He steps into the middle of the heresy, really, that this church has been hearing over and over and over again from their friends, from their family who has left, who has departed, all communicating, Jesus isn't real. Jesus isn't real. He has some good ideology. He's got some good lessons he teaches. But at the base of this, he's not real. So John interjects into the middle of what they're saying, and he says, he is real. How do I know this? Because I have seen him. I have heard him, I have touched him, and all of Scripture gives the indication that this was always to be 
the way God had ordained it, the way God had set it up. So he goes on in verse 2, and he says, And we have seen it, and we've seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you. And what is he proclaiming to them? Everybody say eternal life. So John is communicating to them not just the basis of Christ's existence, not just the fact that he, he lived, not just the fact that he managed to go from place to place, but this communication about Jesus is so vitally important because it is tied to eternal life. You recognize there is no eternal life outside of Jesus. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, we read these words and he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him, speaking of himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So everybody that receives Jesus receives eternal life. He gets into verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is situated on, found in, Jesus Christ. And this is the message we teach. This is the life that we seek to model to people, and this is the, the, the sum total of all we teach everyone we engage. We aren't primarily communicating our experience of Jesus. What we are seeking to communicate is Jesus' eternal life. Do you see the difference? My experience of something may be vastly different than your own. But the veracity, the truthfulness of the word made flesh is there to be beheld and understood by any who see it, by all who hear it. So John wants us to understand the importance of Jesus when in terms of eternal life. See, there is no eternal life outside of Jesus. If you adopt this understanding of Jesus that I really like certain aspects of him, I really like the fact that he gives to the poor, I really like the fact that he hangs out with the downtrodden, this for you may have significant impact on the way that you live your life. You may be less of a jerk. If you, I mean, I don't, I don't, maybe you thought I was going somewhere else with that. But maybe you look at Jesus, you look at the way he treats people. And you say, look, I'm going to adopt certain character traits, certain attributes of Jesus, and incorporate those into my life. And so everybody that meets you say, wow, James, you seem to be a lot nicer. You're like, yeah, I met Jesus. And you're like, oh, so you're a Christian. No, 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 I've not gone that far. I've only recognized certain facets of Jesus' personality that I've sought to really inculcate, bring into my life. And I think they're, I think they're pretty great, so I, I care more for people. I look at the refugee coming over and I say, I've got to do something for this guy because Jesus tells me that I need to care more for others than I do for myself. I look at the unborn and I say, well, I need to do something for this unborn because Jesus says I need to, to care for those who are marginalized, those who are at risk. And so I look at Jesus and I recognize that he spent a lot of time hanging out with people that weren't very lovely and weren't very wonderful. And so I hang out with, with all these kinds of people. In fact, I let go of all my previous friends. They were wonderful and amazing people. And I just hang out with awful people all day long. I say, wow, James, that's pretty sacrificial of you. And you say, yeah, I really like this Jesus guy. I think he was kind of crazy about being God, but I really like all the other stuff he did. You see, at the end of James's life, when he, when he dies, he will have demonstrated a life of faithfulness 
and giving everyone around him the impression that he is amazing and he is in some sense in the flesh living out all the dictates and the commands of Jesus but his life is unchanged we don't receive part of Jesus's teaching and then compartmentalize his commands or his his communication of who he is Jesus's self-revelation his self-testimony of who he is proclaims him to be the son of God and very God of very God so to receive eternal life through Jesus is to receive him as he is not as we seek to make him you see what he's saying here John goes on he says we testify to it we proclaim it to you that which was with the father and was made manifest to us we saw Jesus verse 3 he says, that which we have seen and we have heard, we also proclaim to you. We see in this, in following John's pattern, that those things we know about Jesus, those things we have learned about Jesus, are not merely to be these things that we hold on to greedily, but they're to be these things that we extend freely to everybody we encounter. You will, if you try, find people, even in Greenville, Texas, that have never heard the name Jesus. They may know someone named Jesus, but it's not the same thing. And so we find that as you go out and you meet people and you begin to talk to them about who Jesus is, about what the Bible says of him, they may know something about Jesus, but they don't actually know him. About two years ago, I was sitting and all the staff is required each day of the week to do uh, benevolence. And so people come in, they need help with gas, they need help with food. We meet with these people. We, and why? Because we want to share the gospel, not because we think the gas that we're able to provide them is better, the food is, is, is holy and blessed, and so I get that Aldi card to begin to pray all the blessings of God on that Aldi card, and I give it to them. They're like, oh, life's better. Thanks. Where's this card been? No, that's stupid. And so, but the reason we meet with them is so that we can share the gospel. We say, look, you have a physical need. Here's the answer for that, but can I also explain to you a spiritual need? And most people, I can tell you, most people that I meet with, they know something about Jesus. And so they have some understanding kind of who he is, but a few years ago I, I met with a woman and I, I said, can I talk to you for a moment about some spiritual things about Jesus? And she said, I don't know who that is. I said, well, have you never gone to church? She said, I've never. I said, have you ever read the Bible? She said, I've never. I said, I recognize that Christmas is something about a baby, but I, I don't know anything about it. So I had an opportunity to share with this woman about Jesus. People in our community have never heard the name. More people in our community have heard the name and misunderstood who he is. I had another woman come in. And so I began to talk to her about Jesus. And I've really, in some sense, begun to ask more questions and have them explain the gospel to me. This shows more holes than just me communicating to them and them nodding. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I think that's true. Hypostatic union, fantastic. Let's roll with that. And so I began to ask her the question about Jesus. I said, let me ask you a question about Jesus. And this may seem kind of outlandish, but... Do you think Jesus was God? And she got this really curious look on her face. She got really close to me and she whispered and she said, you may think I'm crazy, but I think he is God. I said, whoa. I said, I don't think you're crazy at all. I think you're speaking in, in exactly what scripture communicates, that Jesus is God. You see, but in her uncertainty, she revealed this deep underlying deficiency of what she actually knew Jesus to be. She was going out on a limb and guessing, and she thought it was crazy. 
But what Scripture gives us, gives us is this ready account that he actually is God. We can receive him no other way. And to receive him as God radically changes our eternity, but it also radically changes our present. Look what John says. He says, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, growing up, I always thought was code word for bad potluck, right? I always thought fellowship was code word for bad potluck. Does that have mayonnaise in it? Right? I don't like mayonnaise. I don't understand people's preoccupation with it. I don't understand it. Maybe a little bit on a sandwich, but that's about it. But all of these fellowships growing up, it was always centered around food. In fact, most Baptist churches, if you find somebody says, we need to do a fellowship, what's one of the first questions? Well, who's going to cook for it? Who's going to cook for it? We can't get together without food. And so we understand what I want to communicate more than almost anything. One, you don't have to put mayonnaise in everything. Two, fellowships don't always revolve around food. Hear the first one. Know the second one. Recognize that fellowship isn't something that hinges on my getting along with you. And so Justin and I get along, but let's say, for instance, that I don't, that I don't like men with beards, which is really a problem for me because I have two of them on staff. But let's just say, for instance, that I don't like men that have beards. I don't want to be friends with any of them. Then our, if you're going to call that fellowship, there's a fracture in our fellowship that hinges off something particular. But you see, even if I don't like men with beards, if I slash their tires, key their cars, and, and, and do all kinds of awful things and spread rumors about them on the internet, my fellowship with him can be undeterred. Why? You say, this is crazy. Why would he want to be friends with you? No, 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 we're not going to be friends, but we can still have fellowship. Why? Because fellowship is that which stems from Jesus. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They walk with God, they talk with God, they're strolling along, and God's like, hey, check that out. I don't know why he called that a lion. That's a really curious name. Oh, look, a cheetah. And so they're walking along, the Bible tells us, naked and unashamed. Along comes Satan, he communicates to Eve, she hears this message, and she sees the fruit that's there that God has told them not to eat. And what do they do? They take, they eat, Adam takes, he eats, and what happens? They recognize that they're naked, they hide themselves, they obscure their relationship with God. In the garden, Adam and Eve have perfect, unadulterated fellowship with God. And God has been about the mission of restoring his fellowship with humanity since the fall of mankind. And so what we see in the Exodus is that this mediated form of fellowship, where God has direct fellowship with Moses, God has direct fellowship with Moses on the mountain, he has fellowship with Moses in the tent, but his fellowship with everybody else is this mediated fellowship, right? They're not directly experiencing God, they're experiencing God through someone else. So we have it perfect in the garden, we have it mediated through Moses, we have it mediated once the temple is built, but in Jesus, we see perfect fellowship with God restored. See, one of the things that Jesus affords us, brings us in his death, is the restored union and fellowship with God. This is why, Christian, you can walk up to somebody in any denomination in town and you can have instant fellowship with them. Why? It's not because you're of the same political party. It's not because you have the same views on different things. Your fellowship with any Christian anywhere in the world ultimately comes back to your place in Jesus. 
John writes to them, he says, we proclaim also this to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And he goes on, he says, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Christian fellowship is us being found having Jesus in common. This is the great commonality that unites all of Christendom. It is Jesus. And so having this fellowship of Jesus in our lives allows us to look, overlook those things that we disagree. Immediately after this service, we're going to hold a vote on whether or not to enter into long-term debt. We're going to enter into a vote to decide, in some sense, the future of the next steps for this church. And there are those in this room that hold one opinion and those in this room that hold another opinion. And you get almost anywhere else in the world outside the church, and what should happen in these is this group doesn't like that group. Why? Because their ideologies and their opinions differ. But what does church represent? Church gives us an opportunity to represent, to manifest what happens when the transcendent power of fellowship with God allows us to be found together, displaying visibly what that invisible internal fellowship represents. So it calls on us not to malign, not to look at people who disagree with us and say, what's wrong with you? You're an idiot. And then to look at us and say, what do you mean I'm an idiot? You're the schmuck over there. But this fellowship with God allows us, because of the close bonds together, that no matter where we live and no matter what various views that we hold that are found textually to be orthodox, that still we have this transcendent, beautiful union. Because Jesus is the one upholding it. Christian fellowship has the power to unite. Because Jesus is the one upholding it. So John writes to them, recognizing the importance of this fellowship and how incredibly important it is for them in the midst of the detractors and the ones who have left sending communication back. And he says, in verse 4, we are writing these things to you so that our joy, his and those who are joining him in the writing, may be made complete. I want you to hear the pastor's heart of this. In 3 John, in verse 4, John writes and he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And the truth we see and 1 John 1, 1 through 4, is that Christian fellowship is that which binds us because what binds us is found in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, we're so thankful. God, I'm so thankful that our fellowship together doesn't hinge on us being likable it doesn't hinge on us being exceedingly kind or warm or bubbly or attractive but our fellowship is unassailable it's unable to be damaged because it is upheld held fast by Jesus Father I pray for those in this room who are outside of that fellowship they know a lot about you they know a lot about Jesus they may even like a lot about you and Jesus, but they have yet to submit themselves to you to cry out for salvation. God, would you woo them? Would you win them? 
Would you break them to their pride, to their goodness, and all those things that are keeping them from coming to you? And Father, the rest of us, those who would claim that we know you, would you help us to walk in the reality of that fellowship? To be close to you, to lift high the name of Jesus, that our fellowship might be displayed in our common purpose.